Abe Foxman is with us live via telephone, really for two reasons that we have him on today, Erev Tishabov. Number one, he's chairing this uh, amazing initiative for Holocaust survivors with the Met Council on Jewish Poverty. You know that we are big fans of Met Council, its leader, uh, David Greenfield. They're amazing staff and volunteers, and now, and they've always helped Holocaust survivors, but now they're really stepping things up, and we'll talk about that campaign in just a few minutes. Also, it's Erev Tishabov. We focus uh, this week, and specifically as we get closer and closer to Tishabov on the tragedies in the history of the Jewish people. Mr. Foxman, Abe Foxman, is, of course, a survivor, a World War II survivor. His parents uh, were survivors, um, and um, he has a unique story. I, I, not unique in that we haven't heard similar stories, but unique in that when you hear it, I'm sure you'll agree, uh, it is quite a unique tale for uh, a modern Jewish history. And uh, he, and that is the reason, uh, those are both the, of the reasons why we felt this was the perfect week to speak with him as so many of us focus on the tragedies of the Jewish people, even the modern day ones. Uh, Abe Foxman, uh, National Director of the Anti-Defamation League from 1987 to 2015, currently the uh, National Director Emeritus. Four years ago, he became Vice Chair of the Board of Trustees at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City to continue his efforts uh, to fight anti-Semitism. Abe Foxman, welcome to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's good to be with you. A pleasure to speak with you, and I'm so glad and thankful that you decided to uh, accept our offer to join us this morning on this uh, Erev Tishabov. Um, I mean, essentially the story is that uh, your parents left you uh, after you were born with your Polish Catholic nanny, um, and then after the war, once they survived, they came to get you. Is that an accurate summary of the first four or five years of your life? More or less. Now, the word left me is a little bit too stark. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, it, it basically that's the, the, that's the outline. Um, my parents lived in Warsaw when the war broke out. And uh, some people stayed, some people moved. They decided to move east. Uh, where my father came from, which was Baranovich, and that's where I was born. Um, they had a nanny for me, um, and as the Germans were moving east, uh, my parents also decided to move further east, and so the four of us um, moved, and the Germans caught up with us in the city of Vilna, capital of Lithuania, in 1941. At that time, when the Germans issued orders for all Jews to be assembled in the ghettos, um, my parents made uh, the most difficult decision of their life, which uh, turned out to be the most serious beneficial one, because indirectly, it not only saved my life, but saved their lives. And so my nanny said to them, listen, uh, this is only going to last a couple of weeks. You go. I'll take care of him, and you come back, we'll be here. Well, the couple of weeks turned out to be four years, but uh, the decision, which my parents could never, never, Nathan, never explain to me. I would always say to them, see, you gave me away. And uh, hmm. it was it's an irrational decision for parents to make, but it was a decision um, that I get also with miracles, because you don't survive just by by man's decisions alone, right. but they were able to fend for themselves, knowing that their purpose is to come back to me. Um, 
family units of three with an infant, the chances of survival were minus zero. I'm not even sure they understood all of that. So it was beshert, it was a miracle, it was, um, and then, you know, um, when they, my mother escaped from the ghetto, my father was liberated, came looking for me, they found each other. My nanny basically said, I saved him, he belongs to me in the Catholic Church. And uh, they tried every which way to make us a family, Uh, it didn't work. Eventually, they had to go to trial, it was the first custody battle and occupied and liberated with the Soviets called liberated uh, territories. The court ruled I belonged to my parents. Uh, we were then repatriated. The Soviets permitted people who became refugees during the war to go back to places from whence they came as long as it was in their empire. We were repatriated to Poland. She was Polish, so she was repatriated as well. I was kidnapped. My parents kidnapped me back, and uh, eventually we smuggled our way to the American zone in Austria or in DP camps for several years and then came to the United States. So that's the essence of of the story. Unbelievable. Abe Foxman with us. You know, it's interesting. We were discussing here yesterday uh, in preparation for this conversation what what that was like. Did the nanny just cooperate with your parents, etc.? It actually went to trial, and one would suspect— that, you know, e- even with the sympathies, you know, immediately post-war for the victims, um, one would still suspect that in an official trial, uh, it, it, you know, we, we would think the decision would go against the Jewish parents. Uh, they must have been surprised when, when officially they were awarded your custody. Well, it, it, it's, hard, it's hard to say. We have to remember this was the communist regime, the Soviets, there were also issues. She um, she went to the Soviets and said my father survived because he collaborated. They arrested him. Mm. Uh, then they let him go. Then she went again and said he was working for a factory that he steals. They arrested him a second time. A third time, now she still brought the KGB. They arrested him a third time. So the Soviet authorities basically said to my parents, we have no time for these games. You have to, you know, litigate it, and they did. Now, there were two tri- There was a trial and two appeals, and um, the record that she abused the system was also part of it. And at the end, where she said, "Well, she was really, she had no proof that I was hers," right. et cetera, she was saving a soul for the Catholic Church, and it fell on deaf ears to the Soviets. So, in the context of the time and the place, and you know. Right. Uh, it, it was, although my parents did have a you know a good Jewish lawyer um, <laughs> who argued my case, who eventually he became a professor of Russian at Brandeis, and many years later, I met him to thank him uh, in Boston. But uh, Dimitrovsky was his name. Did you he, did you ever, as an older child or as an adult, meet up with your nanny? No, that's one of the open questions still. I have no closure. I never said thank you to her. Is she considered uh, a righteous Gentile? Um, in, in my definition, absolutely. In Yad Vashem's definition, probably not, wow. because my mother provided for us, which, you know, she provided food. And right. She, she stole and smuggled. So from that perspective, I, I don't think Yad Vashem would uh, recognize her as a righteous but there's no question in my mind she risked her life every single day 
uh, for four years because I was circumcised and she had no papers and she had no records. And she would always make sure that we always, we ran from time to time from the neighbors. So um, now, uh, at the end, you know, what motivated her, who knows what motivated her, her humanity and, and, and I guess her faith. Um, but no, I, I, I am still, I'm trying to find a place of her a burial. Uh, it's not in Poland. I'm not trying through the authorities in, uh, in Belarus to find out maybe she can went back to Belarus and that's where she passed away. Wow. I would like to. I would like to find a grave. I would like to come and and bring closure by at least saying thank you. You know, close to close to her being, but I never was able to. Amazing. Abe Foxman is with us. We'll talk about the initiative with the Met Council. Uh, there are a couple other things in terms of history on this era of Tisha B'Av that I want to review with you. I'm not asking this for the sensationalism. I'm, I'm, I'm asking you to set up a, a, another conversation. Uh, it, it sounds like, from what I've read, you were a good, practicing Catholic child. Would that be accurate? Yes. Yeah, that's, and, that was part of it. And the reason I say it like that, and we'll get to the transition about learning about your Judaism in a minute, but I could only imagine, and you can, if I'm wrong, tell me I'm wrong, but I can only imagine that, that that experience had to have helped when you went into your professional career in this country in terms of relationships. with Not, not relationship meaning, oh, you know, guys, I was one of you at one time. I don't mean it like that. Just in terms of understanding the mentality of people who are not Jewish, understanding how their religion and their attitudes work toward others, I would have to imagine that all of that was helpful in your career. Am I right? Nobody really knows, uh, you know, people say you survive so you can do so and so. That's, that's almost arrogance. I don't, I don't. I, I would say I was lucky, lucky in the sense that I was given a platform of an opportunity in my adult life uh, to deal with um, two elements which were so, so important um, in, my, in my growing up. One was hate and the other was love. Right. You know, the, the hatred, which was all around us, the anti-Semitism, which, which was the, the which brought about part of the Holocaust, and and the love of a woman who, despite what happened at the end, uh, acted at the highest level of humanity, risking one's life for somebody else. Right. So yeah, I I was fortunate. I don't know to what extent. Um, you know, it, it motivated me in what I did, but but certainly I was fortunate that I could deal with both elements, fight the hate and embrace of the love. People, you know, there's always had this, you know, this is why you became, and then my answer would be, you know, God bless doctors, all of them, but why does somebody become a proctologist? Man. Who knows? Man. You know, very based. Um, I don't know. All I know is I say, Hashem, thank God I had the good fortune um, the miracle to survive, but also to be able to try to make a difference in, in the elements that so shaped my first five, six years of my life. And m many people, especially those in my generation and older, uh, you know, are very familiar uh, with your work, uh, your career at the ADL. Is there a way for you to describe the hate that you're referring to, the hate that you know was all over Europe and, you know, it, it was so around you as you described it, growing up and then you know and 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 obviously many victims in our global community of that hate and then of course the hate that you had to deal with here uh when you were consulted and when you were approached when 
hateful statements were made, when groups gathered, uh, you know, saying certain things and doing certain things and publicizing certain things. Ha- have, have you been able to crystallize what this hate is all about? Why people, why certain people have this terrible animosity towards certain others? I guess if we if there was an answer, if I had the answer to your question, then we could eliminate it. Um, the answer is we don't. And all these years, uh, especially anti-Semitism, for me, is a virus without an antidote, without a vaccine. Um, yeah, we can we can analyze reasons, the forces, the elements, um, but there is. I guess part of the trouble is there is no one reason. Uh, Mark Twain, many, many years ago, um, when he went on a trip to Europe to give a lecture tour, it was in the 1890s, um, came back and wrote an essay concerning the Jews. And uh, he found that wherever he went, he found anti-Semitism. And he found it with smart people and stupid people, rich people and poor people, religious people and, um, and atheists. And then he came and wrote an essay, and he came to a conclusion that it was jealousy, uh, that the reason for anti-Semitism is a jealousy of the Jewish people because of their smarts, because right. of their creativeness, or right. tenacity, faith, whatever it is. Right. Uh, the truth is, uh, yeah, that's one of the reasons. We don't know. Uh, I, I guess to, to some extent I, I come to the conclusion that people have a need uh, to blame others, uh, to explain away or whoever they they are aren't, and there, there probably is a need um, to hate. Uh, now, the antidote, the antidote, that the only antidote we have is education. Right. Education is a very slow process. Mm-hmm. You can infect a child in, in nanoseconds to hate, but to unlearn it is a is a very very tedious uh, process, and and that's that's a serious problem uh, because it's much quicker. To, to be infected, and as we know with this virus that we're <laughs> fighting now, how difficult it is to undo it. Recovery from these viruses are hard, whether it's a physical one or whether it's the one we're discussing of anti-Semitism. Abe Foxman is with us. One more thing on this. Uh, I know we have to talk about the initiative, and we will get to it, but I'm so fascinated by some of the challenges you've had during your career. Um I can imagine that you were you were put in certain situations where you had to make decisions and come out with statements. Not everybody always was happy with with some of the approaches and some of the stands you had to take, which I get. Not a criticism, just an observation. And I'm I'm sure you know when you when you released a certain statement, it took a certain stand. I'm sure half the Jewish community loved it, and half the Jewish community didn't. <laughs> I get the whole thing. Uh, and your successor, frankly, I believe, is also going through some really difficult challenges right now as well. With that in mind, what do you think of the whole cancel culture? Our our position here has always been, including when I worked at a terrestrial radio station for decades, that we don't call for boycotts of anybody because we never want anyone calling for a boycott of us. Uh, essentially, uh, that's what's happening right now, as we see, as so many uh, people, concepts, uh, um, uh, statues of history, etc., are being canceled, are being eliminated, in a sense, being boycotted. 
Uh, and I'm sure there have been many times where you thought during your career that, that it would be an appropriate response to boycott a certain company, to boycott a certain government, uh, to boycott certain people who say certain things or march uh, in protest of certain things or in demonstration of certain things. H- how do you balance that? At what point do you say to yourself, now is the right time to call for a boycott, to call for you know, canceling out or the attempt to cancel out somebody uh, and balance that with, you know what, we as Jewish people have been the victims of boycotts for centuries. It, it, it is unwise for us to use that approach. Uh, Nachum, I, I still believe it's unwise. It's interesting. Uh, there's a boycott now uh, called by the chief rabbi of Britain. Um, I know, I've, I've never called for a boycott. I think the threat of boycott is more effective than a boycott. Uh, boycott sometimes um, hurt people you don't intend to hurt, don't right. necessarily bring about um, the the resolution that you want. And as you said, we we are susceptible to a boycott. We we are vulnerable. Uh, we're a minority. We have been boycotted for nothing. So right. we certainly don't want to legitimize. So no, I have always maintained that that's not the vehicle. Um, to use, but, you know, different people, different times. Uh, you know. Today, as you say, we're in a cancel culture, and right. a cancel culture, part of it is you boycott somebody, you boycott right. them, I guess you could want to erase them, erase who they are and what they do. And there, too, I um, I had the opportunity to confront bigots, um, and uh, I, I always believe, Nathan, that, uh, Nahum, that, um, <laughs> If you want to change people's minds and hearts, you need to provide for them a, a an avenue, a vehicle, an opportunity uh, to change their minds. Otherwise, why bother? So, you know, once if you're a bigot, you can never be an unbigot. You can never repent. You can never, then why bother trying to, 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 to change people's minds and hearts? And I don't know. Um, and, and that's I, maybe you, you know better than I don't know whether the concept of to err is um, human, to forgive is divine, is is Jewish or non-Jewish, but I, I believe in it. Um, and so the cancel culture doesn't achieve very much. It may make somebody feel good that they that they eliminated somebody, but in the long run, uh, we will all uh, you know suffer the loss, whether it's somebody that's creative or. or business, whatever. So no, that doesn't mean that I've always been successful, but I've always tried with bigots to see whether or not um, there's a there's an avenue to, to, to turn them around. Communication is the key in so many areas of life, and it seems that you are, <laughs> that you're fully endorsing that approach. <laughs> Communicating, t- sitting down and talking, it's, it's a really good approach, and the older I get, the more I realize that. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the easiest approach, right. but it's it's the most meaningful in terms of, of people living together. You're, you've essentially been introduced uh, recently, and there have been news stories about it, as the chair of this new initiative. I don't know if officially you're the chair, but uh, it's certainly uh, <laughs> the impression is that you are. Uh, this initiative for the Met Council on Jewish Poverty, a Holocaust survivor initiative. Now, Now, full disclosure, not only are we big fans of of the current administration at Met Council. Uh, we also have a connection there, which I think a lot of people know about, but they are doing amazing work. And uh, it, it must be something for you to see someone come in like David Greenfield and essentially 
rebuild an organization that was going through some very tough challenges. Oh, absolutely. It's it's an essential organization for the city, for our community. And after it, it suffered uh, terrible tragedies and setback, um, David is unique. And, you know, people say to me, why are you doing this? Why are you, at your age, are you taking on another <laughs> responsibility? Well, one of my answers is, you know, first of all, it is who I am. <laughs> I am a survivor. And right. so... You know, but but then you don't. You have to know David Greenfield. Uh, it's very very difficult to say no to David. And so when David reached out and said, "Listen, um, the pandemic has uh, revealed something that we knew, but not to the extent that we thought we knew, and that is the vulnerability." Yeah, a lot of people are vulnerable, and poor people are vulnerable, and elderly people are vulnerable. But Holocaust survivors are vulnerable of the vulnerable because. Um, they are uh, not able, many of them, to go to soup kitchens. They have, many of them have needs for kosher food. And so we have this special need um, now, and that is to feed as many Holocaust survivors as we can. And right. he said to me, Nate, you need to leave this. And I said, you know, how do you, again, as I, how do you say no to him? And also <laughs> understanding, uh, understanding, what hunger is um, in in this whole area of Holocaust survivors? Um, there's a lot that we cannot do for them. There, you know, there's a lot we cannot heal or repair their traumas, their memories, their pain. Their, but there, but this is an opportunity to able to do something. Um, you know, the one thing that is within our power is to make sure that they never go hungry again. And so, uh, if, you know, if I can help in keeping uh, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 uh, survivors not have to worry about that pain of hunger again, then how can I say that? And that so is, is equipped. So they, you know, they, they have the facilities, they have the know-how, right. they have their expertise, they have their staff. And so now with Uber, um, which will help us deliver um, the food, uh, we have volunteers in addition to professionals. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a needed challenge, an exciting challenge. And for me, it's almost like, um, you know, ending the circle. I started a survivor, and so what am I doing now? Trying to make the, you know, the days of survivors a little bit better and a little bit easier. Um, All the information is at metcouncil.org. Everybody out there, we are encouraging you on this era of Tisha to take something upon yourself to help the Holocaust survivors. Abe Foxman chairs the initiative for Met Council. Again, it's metcouncil.org. You'll see it all there in the news section. has articles about uh, Abe and taking on this uh, cause. Uh, Met Council, very organized website. You'll be able to see all the different projects they have in general, but the Holocaust Survivor Initiative obviously is our focus this morning. And Abe, not to get too personal, but I don't think you'll mind me mentioning this if it's uh, uh, going to you know, get the point across to everybody. Uh, you now at the age of 80, being a child survivor, uh, it's essentially those who are between 80 and 100 years old, right, that final generation, uh, that we are now helping. This is this, and and imagine the key demographic that I'm describing. I mean, in general, uh, people in their ninth and tenth decades in this country, um, you know, many of them are impoverished. Many of them are going hungry. Um, you know, certainly uh, those who are Holocaust survivors 
Uh, there are plenty of people in that category going through the same thing. So it's really a, a, a I don't want to say a final opportunity, but but certainly a significant opportunity to help people in a very sensitive age group who've gone through a lot and who are, as Met Council can show us statistically, who are in many cases literally impoverished and hungry. So it's an opportunity for doing another mitzvah. It's a very important mitzvah. It's very direct. It's very clear. It has direct impact. can make a difference. So, yeah, it's... uh, Again, I feel privileged to have that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, everybody out there, just as an example, for $1,000, uh, 330 elderly survivors will receive a meal tonight, obviously. Uh, we say that generically. Tonight is obviously the start of Tisha B'Av. Uh, six weekly food deliveries for $330, for $110, two weekly food deliveries, and you could actually provide 12 nourishing meals for elderly survivors for just $36. All the information at metcouncil.org, metcouncil.org. Mr. Foxman, you know there's one more topic I must address with you because the basic staple during the regular year for the last 37 years of this program is Jewish music, and there is a song that we have played very, very often that you actually have uh, have a role in or something to do with. Um, the song is called A Man from Vilna, and it's a song I actually uh, contacted A.B. Rottenberg this week just to make sure I had the real story right because the song has a little bit of composer license in it. Uh, and essentially it was a Rabbi Goldman, who's the grandfather of someone who actually lives in this neighborhood, a Rabbi Goldman who, um, uh, who uh, was, a, if I have it right, a member of the Soviet Army, a Jewish member of the Soviet Army uh, who was involved in liberating the camps and came to Vilna, Simchus Torah, which I assume was 1945, is that the is that the right start to the story? Yeah, uh, you you are right. Um, when ha- first, my how I how I well, so the story is my father of Shalom was a lot wiser than I ever understood when I was growing up, and um, he was very very sensitive in bringing me back. To Yiddishkeit, you know, uh, on our halacha, on our tradition, once a Jew, always a Jew. Right. Um, so I didn't have to go through anything. I was mauled, I was circumcised, so there, that was it. Um, but there was a process of, I used to go to church, I used to spit on Jews. Um, so um, when we lived together, even during the time of the trials, um, my father, step by step, introduced me to Yiddishkeit. Uh, I used to wear a uh, crucifix. Uh, My father placed it with a talus cotton. For a child of five and six, um, as long as I knew I need something, I I wear something on my body that brings me closer to God, it really didn't matter whether it was a cross or whether it was a talus cotton, as long as I had something that... Right. Connecting you. God, connected me to God. I would say my prayers every night in Latin Hmm. uh, to to Borgia. My father taught me the Shema. You know, I didn't understand Latin. I didn't understand Hebrew. It didn't make a difference. But I knew that every night before I go to sleep, I pray uh, to Borgia, to God. Um, And so uh, everything was done in a a very um, gradual process. The first time my father took me to shul uh, was on Simchas Torah. Now, you can imagine Simchas Torah after the war, after all the destruction and the death, etc. So 
and, and yet it was it was a Simchas Torah in, in the great synagogue of Vilna. Right. On the way to Shul, I passed the church. I dropped my father's hand. I crossed myself. I met a priest. I dropped my father's hand. I kissed the hand of the priest, and off we went uh, to Shul. Um, in synagogue, I met. Um, we met. There was a Soviet officer who approached my father and said to ask him whether I was Jewish, and my father said yes. And he said he traveled thousands of kilometers, and um, during the war, and he did not see a Jewish child alive. Wow! And could he take me and dance with me? Um, and you know, as a as if, as if simple so really. And my father said yes. Right. And so, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I came home and I said to my nanny, I like the Jewish church. Sing <laughs> and they dance. Um, anyway. Yeah, if, you, um, if you're going to be introduced to Judaism, Simchas Torah is a good day to walk into shul. Right. Even, <laughs> even, after, the, even right. after the Holocaust. Now, fast forward. Uh, many years later, I, um, I'm speaking. I'm at Yad Vashem and I... I'm addressing a group of um, Israeli soldiers from Sahal and telling my story. And um, a professional or in the audience is a young lady, Rabbi Schoenfeld's daughter, who was working at Yom Hashem, sure. right. Fabian Schoenfeld's daughter. Right. And she approached me and she said to me, Mr. Foxman, you talk about this soldier. Do you know where he is? You know, I said, I have no idea. I said, but... I have a feeling that he is alive somewhere because somebody sent me this song <laughs> as that you're talking about, the yep. boy from Bill, right. which means that somebody else is telling my story. Right. So, and I, you know, I don't know. Anyway, make a long story short, a year later she called and she said, I found him. Uh, he's a rabbi now. He lives in, uh, in Detroit. And um, I had this course um, to go, and we uh, we reunited. Um, he was elderly; he's now passed away. So I at least had the opportunity um, to you know, to meet again. And uh, wow, from a Soviet officer <laughs> to a rabbi, unbelievable! A rabbi in Detroit with a wonderful family. Um, yeah. So, and and both of and both of you sitting there with incredible memories of Simchas Torah, nineteen forty-five. Yeah, and it's interesting because his family, when 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 I finally reconnected, said, you know, he would always tell the story, wow. but we weren't sure whether he was making it up <laughs> or it was true. It was apocryphal, and now we know that in fact it, it was true. It was on the front page of the Detroit News. The Detroit Free Press. It was a very beautiful moment, and there uh, and there are photos of that reunion online. People could search it and find it. I, be- I believe it took place ten years ago, if I'm right. I think it was 2010. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, your parents and you come to America. What year? We came in 1950. We were in DP camps uh, for several years. That's another story, but yeah. And, and we, your father, we your father, highest and our rel- and some relatives that we have. And here. your father was employed as what in the United States? Uh, everything in the beginning, from a cutter to a cleaning a Pechter's bakery. Did you rise, did you start did you start here in the Lower East Side? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we lived on Cannon Street. Sure. Wow. Yeah. 
I went uh, I went to RJJ for a little time, and then we moved to Jersey on a chicken farm, and then to Brooklyn. So I went to Shiva Flatbush. But um, now, then my father eventually worked for YIVO, worked for Tsika, which is the Central Leadership Culture Organization, Yiddish Books. He was a historian. He was a folklore writer, um, et cetera. Um, yeah, so it, 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 the last thing that he did was sell Yiddish books. Wow. And what year did your parents pass away? Uh, my father in, passed away in 77, he, and my mother in um, 85. Wow. What an unbelievable story. Uh, Abe Foxman, everybody out there on this Erev Tishabov, take advantage of a really well-organized campaign, as everything at Met Council is well-organized these days, uh, to help Holocaust survivors, the Holocaust Survivor Initiative, information at metcouncil.org, metcouncil.org. They've made an amazing choice having Abe Foxman chair this campaign. Oh, by the way, I think I read, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they're looking to make this not just local New York, but but national, if possible, to help Holocaust survivors and possibly yeah. possibly international yeah. if they could do it. Absolutely, but first we need we'll start here right. and then we'll move. Understood. Beyond. But they got there are a lot of efforts. There are efforts going on. We can coordinate it. We can work together and and make it more effective. So I hope that that's and also the effort of of volunteers. Now is not the time. You know, right. Many volunteers are ready to right. do it. But originally, when we talked about it, we talked about uh, inspiring young people to reach out to the survivors. So it's not only uh, it'll be Ruchnius and Gashmias together. It'll be not only their needs, uh, which are physical needs of food, but also spiritual needs of connecting and right. and, and caring and being reinforced. So. That will have to wait till this magafa is over. Metcouncil.org for information, everybody. Metcouncil.org. Finally, Abe, um, tonight's Tishabov, and you and I focused, you know, on one story, yours and your family, in what was such a tragic period for Jews. And you know that in general, young and old, uh, today and tomorrow, focus a lot on national tragedies of ours over the last many centuries. Any special message as we start, Tishabov? Anything you'd like to leave us with as you think back to what was and, and think of what we have now as a nation around the globe? Um, in every generation, they stand, we say in, in the Haggadah every year, the Chalaseinu to destroy us. And I, I think Tishabov reminds us of all the tragedies, but at the same time, it reminds us. And it teaches us uh, about our resiliency um, and our strength and our faith and our continuity and our togetherness. And so, yeah, I, I think the message is we need to be united. Yep. This is a, we live in a world of, of politicization, of dissension, of anger, and maybe, maybe in this moment of, of retrospection, while we fast and, and think about um, ourselves and who we are, maybe that's a moment that will strengthen the unity of Am Yisrael. Uh, we can always use um, unity and, and, and care for each other. So it's always necessary, but maybe at this moment uh, we remember um, the tragedies we survived and that um, it will inspire us to be stronger together as one. Amen. Uh, we're going to do our best to... Uh 
support the uh, the initiative for Holocaust survivors, metcouncil.org. And I cannot thank you enough for joining us this morning. Thank you so much, Abe Foxman. Thank you. And those of us who fast, a gringotonus and easy fast. Yes, a gringotonus and easy fast is right. Thank you so much for that. Wednesday morning broadcast, JM and the AM. My thanks to Abe Foxman. A wonderful opportunity not only to speak about the Met Council Holocaust Initiative, Holocaust Survivor Initiative, I should say, uh, but in addition to that, to hear hear what one family went through during the war and how lucky they were to survive— and we know it's not luck. We know what it is, Hashgacha Pratis, but how lucky, in fact, they were to survive. And um, there were a lot of very, a reminder on this era of Tisha B'Av just how many tragic stories there have been, not just in our history, but in recent history. And I thank Abe Foxman for helping us remember all that this morning here at JM and the